You're listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. Uh, yes, I am the digital discipleship pastor here at Faith Chapel, and I, uh, I get to do what that means is um, I get to help people who don't live near buildings and people who are live in buildings, anybody who lives anywhere, find and follow Jesus and look more like Jesus. We get to equip people through podcasts, through the website, through so many different things. And one of the things I believe and why I'm even here tonight is that um, we're all being formed to look like something. We're either being formed to look more like Jesus or sometimes we're being formed to look more like the world, which might mean we're being deformed in some way. And so every experience from our screens, from our schools, from our families to our workplaces, it's forming us to be people. And so I love that my job gets to be to help people be formed to look more and more like Jesus and to leverage every opportunity I get to help people follow Jesus and look more like him. So it's, it's, a, it's a really cool uh, thing that I get to do and get to be a part of. And I'm just honored, I'm honored to spend uh, this evening with all of you. I, I don't take any of this lightly to, to stand in front of you and uh, to, to teach or to share this message with you. And I, and I just want to preface this. There's a couple things I'm going to say tonight um, that, that I say it with so much humility, um, even to stand up here and talk about women of the Bible as a bald white guy. I mean, like I understand the irony of that. So, um, but, but, but I'm even going to, to pose some questions that I just want to say them with humility, not as an expert, but as somebody who is on the same trajectory, hopefully, as you, trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus today in 2023 in the community of Billings, Montana. And so there's going to be some questions, some things that might shock you a little bit. If you grew up in the church, a couple of things I say, you might go, I don't know about that. And that's okay. Um, I hope that there's something that you might wrestle with a little bit. Um, but not everything I say is absolute truth by any stretch of the imagination, but it's me exploring. And so as a part of this, um, I've set up a, a question and I'm going to call it question and response because I probably won't have the answer to your questions. Um, but, you know, I'll take a, take a stab at it. But if there's anything that comes up and maybe nothing will come up, but as I share, if there's a question that you want to ask, I'll make some room at the end of the message if I don't blabber on for too long to answer or at least respond to some of those questions. And if there's zero questions, great. Or if there's 10, then we'll get through however many Evan uh, will let me talk through. Um, but please feel free, scan that code, and then it's on the, on the paper if you got one. Well, tonight, I normally don't do this. I, I've never been the guy that like titles a talk. I don't know why. It's just never been something I do. But uh, this one I did, uh, and I'm calling it The Miracle of God's Absence. And we're going to talk about the story of Esther. And <clears throat> the story of Esther is just kind of a wild really, really weird story. Um, it is, I mean, it would make a really great uh, Netflix series right now or HBO or whatever because it's filled with like just the craziest tales. And it's, you know, I grew up in the church and so I heard this story and I heard the famous passage of, you've been placed here for such a time as this and just this wonderful moment. And it was like, man, the kid's story does not do it justice to how graphic and brutal and heartbreaking this story is. And so we're going to explore it. Um, but the question that, that kind of I'm, I want to put as an umbrella over the, the whole message is, if God is real, why don't we see him at work? If God is real, why don't we see him at work? And what's really interesting about the book of Esther, about this account, is God is not mentioned once. Prayer is not mentioned once, and there is no miracle in the entire story. And so it's a really, really interesting book. And, and I'm, I, I was, as we were singing in the back, 
I hesitate to say this, but I want to because I think it gives us context in how we interpret this. And I, I don't say this as an expert, but as somebody who's read other experts, okay? But there are a lot of scholars who would maintain that the book of Esther is not a historical story. That what happened in the account is actually just a literary tool. It's just a story, a narrative written to a people to encourage them and answer some questions. But that the actual um, events may be loosely based on reality or might just be a really great story. And the reason I think that's important because the truth that we can pull out of Esther to me right now is actually somewhat more beautiful if it's just a story because it emphasizes God's absence in the story. It emphasizes the importance of prayer. It emphasizes some of the other things. So I, again, I'm not the expert. It could be an actual historical account. The whole thing could be 100% true, but there's also a chance that it may not be. And so as we read it, as we t- talk through this, hold that in, in tension because there's some beauty we can pull out of it. Now, I'm gonna do a really crappy job summarizing it because Esther's a long book and we can't read the whole thing right now. So if you're unfamiliar with it, I'm assuming some of you might need a a refresh on the story of Esther. So I'm gonna do a really horrible job. I'd encourage you to go read it. It's not super long, but too long to read standing up here. So uh, the story of Esther is about a young Jewish girl named Esther. And uh, it's about her living with her uncle. His name is Mordecai. He's also a Jew. He is a part of the diaspora, which is the scattering of Jews living in the Persian Empire. So they're under the reign of King Xerxes. The Persian Empire had conquered them. At this time in history when the story is being told, all of the Jewish or the Judahite or the Israelite people, they were able to go home. If you know Israelite history, there are multiple periods of their time where they're in exile. They're, they're sent away from their land and then there's times where they can go back home. Well, these, this group of people in the story are in Persia, which means for whatever reason, they chose to stay. These Jews are living in Persia when they could have gone Home. Now, King Xerxes was uh, going through multiple military campaigns, and at one point during his campaign, he wants to show off. He wants to say, look at how awesome I am. Look how great my uh, empire is, what we've done. So he throws this massive, massive festival that lasts a really long time. And at the culmination of his festival, he wants to show off his beautiful wife, Queen Vashti. And so he makes this request at the end of just drinking and food and just throw, showering gifts at all of the people in his kingdom. He says, now let's parade before everybody, my wife, Queen Vashti. And she says, no, she's not going to do it. She puts her foot down and he goes, fine, you're not the queen anymore. And so then he goes on this really, really sketchy hunt that we would now in 2023 equate to human trafficking and just horrible like beauty training and all this stuff. He goes through this search. He abducts young women and brings them into a six to 12 month long beauty and sex training, uh, to be blunt, where then the culmination of this is to find the new queen and they get to spend one night with the king to see who's gonna be the next queen. Horrible, tragic process, but this is what the king does because he's the king and what he says goes. So he goes through this, this process and as a result, this young Jewish girl, Esther, she gets taken by force by the Persian Empire, goes through the beauty and the training and all this stuff, spends a night with the king, and he goes, you're the one, let's do it, let's go. And so he picks her, and throughout this process, there's a, a character that we meet, and his name is Haman. 
And Haman is a, an advisor to the king. He's one of the top advisors to King Xerxes. And he has a strong, strong distaste for the Jewish people. He, he does not like them. And in fact, he has multiple inter- encounters with Mordecai, Esther's uncle, where Mordecai refuses to either stand in Haman's presence or bow in Haman's presence. And, and Haman's like, this can't, this can't happen. This can't go on. Do you know who I am? You should do these things. So Haman, long story short, again, I'm doing a crappy job. I, I, you read it, you go, that guy has no idea how to do this. Haman comes up with a plot. And this plot is, let's wipe out the entire Jewish people group that are still in Persia. Let's obliterate them. Let's set up a day. So he works on this proposal. He sets this plan in motion and they cast lots and set up a day when they're going to literally, methodically kill the Jewish people. It's, a, it's gonna be a mass genocide. And that's how the Jewish people now today would celebrate Purim. And that's a result of this time, okay? So sets this up. King's like, sure, I don't get it, Haman. You don't like these people, but yeah, everything you said makes sense. Haman sets it up as like, hey, these are people, they're weasels. They're not, they're not going along with your plan. They're gonna, they're gonna try and uh, usurp your authority at some point. They're gonna overthrow you. They're not submissive. They're a horrible people group. Let's get rid of them. So this plan gets set in motion. Mordecai is also in some way involved in the politic of the day. He works in the courtyard is what we're told. And so Mordecai, again, Esther's uncle, hears about this plan in his day-to-day operations and doing his work. He hears about this plan to exterminate the Jews. And so he goes to and sends word to his niece, the queen, and says, hey, listen, you've got to do something about this. I'm a Jew. You're a Jew. We're not going to escape. You think that just because you're the queen, you're going to get out of this? You've got to do something about this. And so we have this, this famous, if, you're, if you grew up in the church, this famous passage uh, in Esther. It's in chapter four, verses 12 through 16. And so they're kind of going back and forth on like, what's, what's gonna happen as a result of this? What is Esther going to do? And finally, Esther gives in. She, she says, okay, I'm gonna do this. And I think she does this after uh, some fasting, which does, again, doesn't say prayer, but after fasting, the prayer is implied. Esther four, verses 12 through 16 says this. When Esther's words were reported back uh, to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. There's the fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So then they fast. They do this this three-day fast and Esther decides to go before the king. She presents herself before him. And again, this is against the law. So the law would have said, if you present yourself before the king without invitation, you get killed. You're done. Get out of here. So she does it anyways. She goes before the king and the king responds in this super gracious way. He goes, oh my gosh, 
Queen Esther, I'm so great you're here. I mean, he's obviously attracted to her and thinks she's gorgeous. So he's like, yeah, you're awesome that you're here. And then he says, why are you here? What's your request? He makes this really, really grand statement. Okay, it's probably figurative. He says, whatever you ask, even if it's up to half of my kingdom, you can have it. And she says, okay, come to dinner with me tomorrow night. He's like, all right, great. So then they do this dinner. And then he says, okay, you asked me this dinner. What's your request? And then he makes the, the, the promise again. Even if it's up to half of my kingdom, figurative, not real, trying to make a point, what, I'll give it to you. It's, it's my, my kingdom. It's up to half of it's yours. And she goes, you want to do dinner again? He goes, sure, that sounds great. So then in between this and, and the next dinner, the king, there's a coincidence that happens. The king is sleepless. He can't fall asleep. And during this time, he, he gets one of his attendants and says, hey, would you, I can't sleep. Would you read about me? Would you read to me about me? And so this attendant reads this account of Mordecai and it ends up being a reminder that Mordecai saved the king and thwarted this uh, overthrow in the past. And so he honors Mordecai, which makes Haman even more angry and even more incensed and wants to, carry out this plan to exterminate the Jews. And then they go to the final dinner and he goes, okay, Queen Esther, here we are. What is your request? And she says, you have just issued a decree to destroy me and my people. You're about to exterminate them and it's because of this wicked man, Haman. You need to write a new edict to save the Jews, to save my people and to save my family. And the king gets up, he's angry, he does the decree, Haman gets impaled on the gallows that he would, had set up for Mordecai, the Jews are saved, and in a really dark, twisted turn, okay, in the end, the enemies of the Jews still come out, and then the Jews basically murder all their enemies, and that's how the book of Esther ends. Great story, right? Like, so dark, so weird, so intense. And so as we look at this famous woman in Christendom, in, in our in a world, if you're a part of the church, like Esther's like this, this high point for people. Queen Esther, she's the best, she's the greatest. She stepped into this great moment, but her story is so tragic and so traumatic. And then when you actually look at the surroundings and what's going on, there's, I think, so many things we can learn from, from uh, this story. And I'm, I'm kind of framing it around three questions. And the first question I want to, to learn from Esther is, am I safe? Am I safe? Last week, uh, we were at a baseball game. My son, Harvey, is going to be eight in June. And uh, we're kind of a soccer family. I played soccer in, in high school. And my wife, she played soccer in high school. And I never played baseball. I never really liked baseball. I don't really get baseball. But my son says, I want to play baseball. So, okay, we're, we're playing baseball. So um, I feel like a fish out of water, but we're at a game last week and we're in the top of the first inning, but I'm learning, see, huh? top of the first inning. And he's, he's number five in the batting order. And this is important because we didn't get very far into the game. So Harvey strikes out, he's number five, top of the first inning. And then the next kid is, is standing up to bat. And we're just outside of first base, just past the dugout watching. And a mom comes up to the dugout and she says to the coach, get all of the kids off the field. There's been a gun threat. And then another mom hears it and I hear it and I just kind of stare at her. And the mom goes, what? And the first mom says again, get all of the kids off the field. There's been a gun threat. And so then the other mom's like, well, should I call 911? She goes, yes, call 911. 
And so I immediately, Harvey's like walking off the field. I'm like, Harvey, grab your stuff. Let's go. I grab my other son, Cohen, who's, who just turned four. My wife is packing everything. She's like, what do we do? I said, I don't know, but we need to go. And instantly, my instincts just kick in to, to put my body in between whatever's going on and my son's body. So sorry, I'm getting emotional. <sighs> Did not expect that. <laughs> and so we're walking to the car and I'm just, I'm looking around, I'm scanning the park and there's this, this confrontation happening. There's a bunch of swearing and yelling at this park. I won't tell you what park it was because it ended up being nothing. But we're, we're walking across and there's this, this yelling and this match and the other team is, is packing up their stuff and it wasn't pandemonium, but in that moment, we're walking to the car and I'm shielding my boys. Sorry, guys. Whew. Whew. And I didn't care about my safety. I was just like, nothing better happen to my boys. So we're, we're standing in between. <clears throat> we get in the street. I can see the alleged gunman and he's, he's just off in the distance and there's a car, our car is in between it. And I remember kind of getting them in between uh, like the tires so there was nothing. There was literally no way. If there were any stray bullets, there were no windows. There was nothing. It's just me and the boys and we load up and we're just sitting in the car and my wife gets in. I cared about her safety too. It just makes me sound like I sh- <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. You've got legs, don't you? <laughs> I cared about her as well. I promise. <laughs> Wow. Um, and so we get in the car and, and we're talking through like, okay, what do we do? What, what is our response? Now there's so many different things going on. How does this escalate? And as, as we're watching this thing unfold, there's two guys, I, I still have no idea what happened. There ended up being no gun. It ended up just being, I think, an, an idiot who ran his mouth and just said, I'm gonna shoot up the place and people panicked. But the point that I wanted to make, and apparently it's still very raw for me, um, but the point I wanted to make was sometimes we're, we're faced with situations. And this question of am I safe has become a cultural one. It's one that I think about all the time. I tend to be a worrier in my family. My dad's a worrier. And I'm constantly paying attention to safety, to what's going on. And in a place where I should be sitting at a park in Billings, Montana, safe and okay, I ended up being completely unsafe And I think there's going to be many opportunities in our lives where we can do what I think Esther did. Because my question to you is, what do you do when you're not safe? What's your response? And I don't want to say this to make me some sort of hero, like, oh my gosh, I protected my boys. I didn't do anything. I walked to a car. But my instinct in that moment is the, all it was was father instinct. That's it. That's the only thing I did right But what we see in this story of Esther, what we can learn from Esther in this moment is that where we've been placed, where we are in our life, sometimes is completely out of our control. I did not choose to live in Billings, Montana when I was born, right? I was born to Jeff and Steph Steingraber in Billings, Montana in 1987. I had zero choice in that, no choice whatsoever. Esther also was placed in the, this particular situation. She gets drafted for this royal pageant with a horrible twist to it. And she gets placed in this process that she had no control over, drafted into this thing. But what we see is that sometimes the tragedy in our story, sometimes there's tragedy in your story, sometimes there's tragedy in my story, even trauma. In Esther's story, that would be tragic, both tragic and traumatic to go through what she went through. 
to become the queen, and which we would, like, at the end, we're like, oh yeah, you're the queen, but like, to get there is not by any of her choosing. And so my question in response to this am I safe question would be, will you leverage your current placement for God's kingdom, even if it means being unsafe? Will you be unsafe for the safety of others? Because I think that our participation can create safety for others. Our participation in the solution of what's happening in the world around us can create safety for others. Esther did this. She took her moment. She took this placement that she had no control over and she said, I will leverage this for the safety of my people. I will be unsafe. I will go before the king. She even says it at the end of that scripture. If I perish, I perish, but I will be unsafe for the safety of others. And we also see that this symbol of Esther also points to something that we believe Jesus did, that Jesus' entire life culminates in him saying, I will be unsafe for your safety. I will be unsafe for your redemption. I will be unsafe to bring you home. And so in Esther, we have this image and this symbol and this beautiful example of her saying, am I safe? And her response is, I'll become unsafe to make my people safe. Question number two is, how do we live in exile? This is an interesting question. I think personally that as Christians, I I think Evan's talked about this, so hopefully this isn't a brand new concept that just throws you for a loop and you're like, what in the world? This guy doesn't care about his wife and he's saying things like exile, like who is this guy? But I believe that we we are people who are following Jesus and we're in exile. Our culture does not align with who we are and what we believe and that's okay. We get to be exiles in a culture that's different than ours. And so I think this applies to us. And what we find, again, this story is about exiles in Persia. And so they would have been asking this question too. How do we live in exile? How do we be good Jews? How do we follow God while we're in a completely different empire, kingdom, place? What does this look like? They would have been asking that. How do we follow our Jewish customs, our Jewish laws? How do we love God well while in exile with these different laws, different customs, different traditions? And And what might be true about the story of Esther is that this may be a counter narrative to the story of Daniel, especially in response to this question of how do I live in exile? So the story of Daniel, if you're unfamiliar, in the Old Testament, this will be even shorter and potentially even worse, but the story of Daniel is about um, another person living in Babylonian exile, and he becomes an incredible advisor to the king. He's like nearly the right-hand man to the king, but all the other advisors hate the guy. They're like, we gotta get rid of him. He's the worst. Let's get him out of here. So they do something very similar to what Haman did in in our current story, and they get the king. They're like, hey, king, you're pretty awesome. He's like, I am awesome. He's like, what if people only pray to you? He's like, that's a great idea. And if anybody prays to you, they die. They get thrown into the lion's den. He's like, I love it. Let's do it. So they write this law and Daniel says, I'm not going to do it. I won't pray to you. I'll only pray to my God. He says, I'm only going to eat my food. I won't eat your food. I'm going to live by my Jewish traditions and customs. I'm going to stand up for what I believe is right. I'm going to stand up and do what I do. I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. He doesn't hide. He goes, he, he gets caught. They catch him in the act of praying. They throw him in the lion's den. And then there's this wonderful miracle where God shuts them, sends an angel, shuts the mouth of the lions, and then the king wakes up the next day, it's King Darius, and he goes, Daniel, are you down there, my friend? And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. And then the king is like, 
oh my gosh, your God is the one true real God. There's this huge miracle. And so the story of Daniel sets, answers this question, how do I live in exile with this? Stand up, don't change, follow God, stick out, don't give in, don't surrender, and there will be a miracle at the end. That's the point of that Daniel account. God will show up in this huge, beautiful way. And Esther is saying almost the exact opposite. Blend in, lean into culture. God will harness coincidence to do his will and to rescue his people. And so we see this opposite answer. And I I personally love this because in Esther we see that we can leverage our placement for God's kingdom. Dallas Willard, if if you're familiar with him, he wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, which I would highly, highly encourage. It's so good. But at the end of his book, he, he sets up this picture that if we're people who are following Jesus in today's culture, if, if we're doing this well, if we're following God well, we should not be afraid of being the best in every field that we're a part of. It should look like this, something like this. I'm butchering his, uh, his, uh, his words. If you read it, you'll see. But he says, our culture should look to Christians in our culture and say, I don't agree with what they believe, but man, they're the best carpenters. They're the best artists. They're the most honest hardworking accountants, they are the best at anything. If you want to get something done well and done right, you get a Christian. And it's not fighting against the culture, it's being a part of it and leveraging it for God's kingdom. And I love that vision, I love that story. I think it's so powerful. And we see that with Mordecai, right? Mordecai is a leader in the courtyard. He understands what's going on in the politic. And when he hears about the plot to destroy the Jews, he leans in and says, what's going on? And then he, he, he goes behind the scenes. He talks to the queen. He's probably not supposed to do that, but he leverages his position for the redemption of God's people. We also see it with Esther. Esther in her dinner invitation over and over and over, it's not just her being shy or being uh, timid. No, she's doing that on purpose. She's saying, hey, listen, come to dinner. He makes this huge, huge offer up to half the kingdom. Okay, let's see. Do I do dinner again? And by that process, by the time he makes that offer again, he can't say no to whatever she asks of him. She's cunning. She is smart. So she leverages that cultural moment, that cultural option of the king being grandiose to say, all right, you've offered it three times now. If I ask you to reverse this and you say no, you look like the worst person on the planet. And he's egotistical. So he's going, all right, I've made the offer. I've got to say yes. I've offered it three times now. She leveraged her position for God's people. And I I don't know about you, but often I look around and I think we can tend to look around and we can ask the question, who is going to do something about this? Doesn't God care about this situation? And the answer just might be yes. And that's why I put you there. That's why I've placed you there. Because all throughout the Bible, all throughout scripture, God's desire has been to bless all people. All of his covenants are about all nations, all people. And so if he cares about all people, for you to be placed where you are, for me to be placed where I am, when we see something amiss and we are looking for a miracle, we're looking for God to step in on the injustice, the answer might just be us. 
as an agent of God's kingdom. What if our participation is the miracle? And in the story of Esther, that's what we see. There wasn't this grand moment that everybody was looking for. Her participation in the story was the miracle that wasn't really a miracle. And God will partner with us to make a way for people by using our current placement. And then the final question is, what is my worth? What is my worth? Last, this time I won't, tell, I won't cry um, talking about this, this story um, about my son, but I got to coach soccer last spring uh, for Harvey, which was super fun. But it's uh, rec league soccer. It's YSA. If you grew up in Billings, you, you might be familiar with it. And uh, as a part of being the coach, one of the, one of the responsibilities is at the end of the season, they give you this packet and it's got a bunch of medals in it. And every kid gets a medal. Every team gets a medal. I mean, literally everybody gets a medal. And for me, I'm like, this literally means nothing. It's jack squat. It's, it has no value. It's a participation medal at best because some of these kids really didn't participate that much, but okay. And I remember uh, one of the kids wasn't going to be at our final game and he goes, hey coach, can I, can I get my medal? I'm like, oh sure, yeah, you can have it early. But I'm like, why? Why do you want a medal? Because there's something in me. I, we love actually to have the best thing, right? We, we love the Olympics. If everybody got a medal in the Olympics, what would that be? It would be not worth watching, right? We love to have the winners. We love the World Cup. We love these tensions and all these things that actually set people up to find out who is the best, who's the fastest, etc. And so for me, everybody getting a medal, it just kind of creates a situation, and you've probably heard a phrase like this, if everyone is special, no one is special. And so this everybody getting, a, it just drives me nuts because I'm like, but there's, it doesn't have any value. But what we see in the story of Esther is it's kind of a little bit of both things, okay? Because God's invitation to us, God's invitation to Esther, that what we see, in the, and again, it's not explicitly mentioned in this story, but God is telling a story all the time of redemption and healing and hope and an ultimate story of redemption for all his people. And he's inviting us to be a part of it. And his invitation to all of us attributes great value to each and every one of us. Because we are not just extras in the story. We're not just, you know, guy number one. We get to be a part of some significant things. We get to be a part of what God is doing in the lives of others around us. We get to be a part of his plan of redeeming and restoring people. Yet, at the same time, there's a tension here you're not the extra, but you're also not the hero. Jesus is. Jesus is the hero. And it's his kingdom. And God uses people to reach people. And so if you're around people, God is inviting you to partner with him to take his plan of redemption to those around you. God uses people to reach people. And so when we think about our worth, when we think about is if everybody's special, no one's special. There's this paradox of how God has given each one of us so much worth, so much value to say, you are worth being a part of my story and I will give you a large role. I will partner with you, I will bring you along, but it's all about pointing to Jesus. It's all about pointing to his 
redemption plan. He will leverage your story just like he did for Esther to help share who he is. Something that I think Esther also points to is that he can redeem trauma and culture for his good. The story of Esther, again, it was quick, but her story was tragic and traumatic. And yet her yes to his invitation has given her worth and he's redeemed it for his own good to restore his people. He can redeem trauma and culture for his good. So I want to end with a few questions to, to ponder, and then I'll look and see if any of you have asked any questions, and if not, it, it, it's fine. Um, I'll maybe cry again. Um, so so here, are some, here are some questions. Will you be unsafe for the safety of others? Will you choose to be unsafe for the safety of others? Will you leverage your position to make a way for redemption? This is maybe my favorite part because I just think it's so good that it doesn't matter where you are, how big you think you are, how awesome you think you are, or how small you think your role is. God has placed you in a position and he can leverage it for the good of those around you. That is such a beautiful thing to me. And will you step into God's invitation into what he's doing? Will you choose to opt in and say, you know what, I'll be a part of that story? And finally, how will you live in exile? I love the juxtaposition and and I'm, I'm giving you probably more homework than I am anything else, but read the account of Daniel and read the story of Esther and see how those responses of how to be a person in exile contrast. I'll just be really candid. I think our Western cowboy American mindset is stand up, stick out, do what's right. And the Esther account is a little bit opposite of that. It's lean in, be subversive. Point people to Jesus with what you've got, with what you've been given, with what you've placed. All right, I'll shut up and start uh, reading. How do you courageously step into unsafe situations? Wow, great question. Um, Evan, do you want this one? <laughs> um, you know, obviously without, without knowing that, here's, here's the, the biggest thing. When I get into situations where I feel unsafe, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Holy Spirit, so this is a whole new um, whole new uh, tangent that would go off of. I, I just, I ask the Holy Spirit to cover those moments like crazy. And I trust the promptings. And sometimes that feels like a gut prompting. Um, and I, I just have to trust that if, if, if God's asking me, if the Holy Spirit is leading me to step into a situation, then I courageously step forward. And, and that can look like a lot of different things. Um, but I think some of it too is, I think you'll know like what the right thing to do is. And if the right thing to do to, to bring justice, uh, if you've heard of the uh, Brad Gray ever talk, he talks about shalom and what shalom means in this Jewish concept is to bring justice and peace back in, into society. And so if you've got an opportunity to bring justice and peace back into the world around you, but it's a risk for you, pray about if that's something you need to do that, to step into it. And it, you're gonna be, like, it's always scary. Like I, I wish I could tell you that when I've stepped out that it's gone well all the time. Um, or that I haven't made a fool of myself, or that it's gone perfectly. Um, but courage, it, being courageous is it's a scary thing. Um, but ultimately, trust the Holy Spirit. 
Pastor Ed, great faith. I think it's easy to say have faith or pray more in the church, but what does having faith really look like on a daily basis? I love that question. Um, man, that's, that's something that I don't have a clean answer for. Um, I was just having in a conversation this afternoon um, and we were talking about the essentials of, of what we believe. And one of the... Um, one of the hot topic things that goes around, and maybe you're going through it, and so I don't want to dismiss it at all, but there's so many Christians, there's so many leaders, there's so many of us, and I've gone through a process myself. Uh, I wouldn't call it this, I'd call it remodeling, but deconstructing our faith. Maybe you've heard people do that or walking away. And sometimes it's really hard. I mean, like, that's why at the beginning of my message, I talked about if God is real, why don't we see him at work, right? And sometimes to have faith in something unseen, to have faith in something that you can't, always tangibly attached to is really difficult. For me, I've, I've gone through a, a period of time where my relationship with God has been um, very similar to the account of the Israelites wandering in the desert where there's a, a cloud by day and fire by night, which basically means I don't hear God talk to me very clearly in this last season of life. And so I, I've, I'm very familiar with, I've, have, I've got dozens of question marks in my life that I don't have answers to, but what I cling to is the essentials. Jesus Christ, him crucified, him being raised back to life and sitting at the right hand of the Father and then me just saying, God, help me look like you every day. And what that looks like tangibly in each situation might be different, but it, I would even say it comes back to what I was talking about, that shalom idea, that what, what my life looks like, even with question marks, is God, how can I partner with you to help other people look more and more like you and to bring your kingdom into all situations. And that's me exercising my faith in a practical way to go, okay, God, I don't feel you at all. Like I've had some significant months in the last few years where there's zero emotion tied with my relationship with God. I'm just being really honest here. But what that looks like is then I cling to what I know is true and I say, okay, but I'm still going to bring these essentials. I'm gonna still bring your kingdom, your love, your goodness, your life, your wholeness. I'm gonna bring life into situations that don't have life. And I'm gonna be a part of that process. And then through that, I often get to see moments of God's fire or God's cloud where he, he's part of that. I don't know if that answers the question. I apologize if it's more confusing. Find me afterwards if there's more. Evan, and then you can just shut me off when you want me to. Um, how do you balance influencing culture versus being influenced by culture? Yes, great question. Um, this would be my, my litmus test for that. What is your fruit? Um, in Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Um, and then Philippians chapter three or four, I can't remember, has a list of things we should think about. Whatever's true, noble, helpful, pure, lovely, admirable, pray, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, the reason I bring those up is because in our culture, we have a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and a lot of death happening in our midst, where we wake up and we feel like there's something dying inside. And Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, but we're filling ourselves with death. We're filling ourselves with anxiety and we're not focusing on our fruit. And you can't conjure fruit. Fruit comes after you've cultivated uh, something to bear fruit. But when we're filling ourselves with culture and things that make us feel anxious, depressed, sad, lonely, when that's what we wake up feeling, you're probably being influenced. And so then we have to, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, it's like, 
if there's still life verses, are there life verses? I don't know. Talks about um, transforming your mind. And so what are you filling yourself with? And then you'll start to notice that when you're filling yourself with the good things, like that list in Philippians, you're gonna start to be an influencer because you're gonna bring life into situations instead of death. Uh, What about the places you choose that may become unsafe? How to know God is still there? I don't know. That's a hard one. I'm a... I would encourage you to read, um, read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's somebody who uh, was part of World War II and he fled the, the Nazi oppression, came to America and then felt so convicted that he went back and joined the Nazi, regi- Nazi regime and tried to take it down from the inside out and end- ended up dying in prison as a result of his uh, attempt to have a coup against Hitler. He was somebody who was unsafe all the time, but he believed God was still there. So study his life and you might learn something. He'd have better answers than I. Uh, Evan, did you just give me a signal? One more question, okay. Final question, what are some ways to start believing the truths that God has for our worth and discerning the lies that the enemy is saying about our worth? First off, um, as we were singing the song, um, I had this impression, so maybe this is part of it, that some of you don't believe um, that, that God's goodness is running after you. And so I would just say, I've gone through seasons of my life where I've wrestled with anxiety and value and not, not certain that God, I was certain God loved me, but I wasn't certain he liked me, right? Obligatory, like, like cosmic love, but not like favor for me, wanting to be around me. I was like very legalistic relationship with God. In that season, what I did is I read the Psalms out loud to myself every single morning. Psalms about God's love, his favor, his goodness, his unfailing love. There's some Psalms that talk about his love endures forever. His love endures, and it repeats it over and over and over. And, and the truth about getting our, our minds to change some of the patterns, some of the soundtracks that play is repetition. And learning to say, well, there's probably been a soundtrack. Uh, here's another recommendation. John Acuff wrote a book called Soundtracks. It's all about learning how to replay some of the lies that we just get stuck in in our lives. Um, super, super good book. But if you've got a, a soundtrack playing that you're, you're worthless, begin to learn how to replace that soundtrack with you are worthy. God loves you. His love endures forever. His goodness is coming after you and soak yourself in that truth on a daily basis. And sometimes that feels quote unquote legalistic, but it took that to get you where you are today. The repetition of the lie made you believe it. So it's gonna be repetition of the truth to help you believe it, live it, unown it. Okay, let me pray for you all um, as we wrap up. God, thanks uh, for this, this group of people. And I'm just so humbled, so honored to share this sacred space um, with people who are chasing after you and trying to understand what it looks like to follow you in this culture and in this day. I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you help us learn and discern what it looks like to follow you, to be in exile when our culture doesn't always align with your truth. Holy Spirit, would you anoint each and every person in this room to understand that you are loved, that you love them, that they are loved, and would, would you, God, give us a greater picture of how you're inviting us into your story and how you want to use us to partner with you, to leverage 
your kingdom so that all people, all nations would be redeemed, would be restored, would be renewed, would be a part of that. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FC Young Adult Podcast. If you are in the Billings area, we would love to see you at our in-person gatherings on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're unable to attend in person, there are always ways to engage online. Follow along through Instagram at faithchapel.ya or find our ministry page at faithchapel.cc. You are loved.